This week on The Deadly Seven. Greed has been running a gambling hall on the outskirts of town for quite some time now. He doesn't just deal in money, though. He plants the seeds of his evil in hearts where they least expect it, encouraging people to gamble with their very souls. He lives in a dark, scary house up on Dead Man's Hill that is filled with all sorts of ghostly stories and trinkets. Legend has it that he doesn't live alone. Stay alert and aware as we just may encounter his pets, the green-eyed monster and other scary creatures. Good morning. Welcome to Central Church. We're so glad that you could be with us. We are nearing the finish line of this series, The Deadly Seven, where we've been looking at those foundational sins that Christians historically have said lay the groundwork for all the other sins in our lives. And so, so far, we've, we've talked about pride, and the key verse that week was, the Lord detests the proud at heart. Be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. Pride is a terrible thing, a big problem. Envy, the week we talked about envy, we said that envy is the, one of the deadly sins that is the least fun. It leads to anger and bitterness and, and, and all sorts of, of, of rage. The Bible says this, a heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones, and how true that is. We talked about gluttony. The key verse was, so whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And we, we talked about what it means to eat and drink for the glory of God. When we talked about lust, the key verse was, but among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality because these are improper for God's holy people. And then last week was anger. We looked at several aspects of anger. Really, the, the key verse was from the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4 when he said, be angry, but don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. And we talked how anger, we can explode, and that's, you know, rage and yelling and screaming and fists through the, through the wall, and we can implode. Frequently, that's uh, biting our fingers and nails or, or, or doing internally, but either way, it leads to destruction. We also talked about how anger is the only one of the, of the deadly seven that, that can be righteous. You can't have righteous lust or righteous pride, but you can have righteous anger. We talked about how Jesus went to the temple and flipped the tables when the money changers were taking advantage of the people. And we said sometimes we Christians need to have a little bit more righteous anger at the immorality that we see in our world today. Well, today... We're up to number six of the deadly seven, and we're talking about greed. Now, we all know that greed is bad, right? Jesus called the Pharisees greedy, and that was not a compliment. Paul frequently talks about greed, and those that are greedy don't see the, will not see the kingdom of God, so of course that's a bad thing. Usually when we talk about greed, we're, we're talking about it in reference to money. Not always, but usually. And Paul said this about money, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Notice Paul didn't say that money is the root of all evil, but rather the love of money is the root of all evil. The love of money is the big problem. I've known people who are very, very wealthy, but they, they also were very, very generous. They understood that God was the owner, they were the managers, and they used their wealth to bless others, and they, they used that in a, in a wonderful way. I've also known people who were very, very poor that were very greedy. 
They were always looking, I can think of one family in particular, they were always looking for a get-rich-quick scheme. They were always, uh, I think they were secretly hoping that, you know, a neighbor's dog would bite them or they'd slip on somebody's uh, icy sidewalk, you know, so they could sue them. (laughs) Just their bad luck, no rabid dog ever bit them, as far as I know. They just were, you know, they they were poor, but they were greedy. Paul says the love of money. He goes on in that very same chapter to say this, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. If you don't know your wealth is uncertain, just pay attention to the stock market just this week. It's up and down and all around. But to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Paul is saying, think about it. We're going to spend a whole lot more time in eternity than we are on this old earth, and so, so we better be preparing for our, our time in eternity. We need to think about how we are being a blessing to others. We need to think about how we're using the resources that God has given us. Are we just spending all that we can and then giving God the leftovers, or are we taking things to God first? Think about it, Paul is saying. Again, we're talking about greed today. You may not be able to quote Proverbs 28, 25, but you know it's truth. When Solomon said, the greedy stir up conflict, but those who trust in the Lord will prosper. Solomon seems to be making a a, a distinction. There's two ways of living in this life. You can live a greedy life. You can live towards the greed, or you can live in a, a life that's full of trust. You see, those that are greedy don't trust in the Lord. In fact, I think it's impossible to trust in the Lord if you're being greedy. You're either going to trust in your bank account or trust in your 401k or trust in your security to those things, or you're going to trust in the Lord. The greedy trust their bank account. See, the big problem with the greedy is that they always want more. They need more. More money, more security, more land, more, more, more. When, when uh, John D. Rockefeller was the richest man in America, he was the Amer- the America's first billionaire, someone asked him, how much is enough? How much money is enough? And his response was, a little bit more. That's kind of the definition of greed, really. See, the Bible tells us repeatedly, over and over, from cover to cover, in in different ways and in different books, but it always tells us that God is what we most need, that God is the one who supplies our need, that God is the author of every good and perfect gift we have, that God is our hope, he's our, our help, he's our healer, he's our provider, he's our redeemer, he's our counselor. He's our strength when we're weak, and he's the one that fills us when we're empty. He lifts our burdens, he carries our troubles, that we can trust him. But when we forget that, when we get our eyes onto other things and the stuff of this old world, that's when we run into troubles. We see it throughout Scripture. When Adam and Eve were enjoying the perfect paradise that God had prepared for them, they're in paradise You can't get any better than paradise. By definition, paradise is perfect. And yet Adam and Eve weren't satisfied. Do you remember that? The Bible says that Eve, when she saw the tree was beautiful and and its fruit looked delicious, she wanted the wisdom it would give her. She wanted something more. She's living in paradise, and yet she's not satisfied. Now, Michigan, it's close to paradise. I think it's a local call. You know, we love our Michigan summers. Like, like I mean, these last couple days have been beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. 
But it's not perfect, and you know that. And so it's not surprising that we too would be tempted by greed and the desire for something more. When the children of Israel had escaped out of Egypt and crossed the Red Sea, what they found in the wilderness was that there wasn't any Walmarts or, or, or uh, Kroger's, no VG's, uh, nothing like that. There, there wasn't even, you know, for the million people, you know, maybe they needed a Sam's Club or a Costco, but there wasn't that either. It was just God. They had to rely on God for his provisions. And you know the story, every day, every single day, God provided manna in the morning and quail at night. And God's instructions were simple. Take what you need for that day. On, on the day before the Sabbath, you take twice as much, and that'll cover the Sabbath day, but every day, take only what you need, that's all you need to get. And I'll take care of you every single day. But there were some greedy folks. They wanted to take a little bit more. They, they went out and they grabbed more than enough for a day. They grabbed enough for a couple of days. They grabbed it all. They wanted to have a manna snack in the morning, I guess. But you remember what happens the next day. They went to check out their manna that they had taken extra from the day before. And it was all maggoty. If you've never had maggots in your maggot, manna, that's a bad thing. Trust me. Not that I've ever had maggots in my manna, but trust me. The lesson was don't stockpile, don't hoard, don't be greedy. Just, just don't, you, you don't need more, just trust God. Children of Israel should have learned. David, King David should have learned that lesson. In 2 Samuel 24, it describes a sin that, that David fell into. Now, he's not guilty in 2 Samuel 24 of, of the affair with Bathsheba. That was, if we were to quantify sins, we would say that was a really, really bad sin, Right? He had an affair with Bathsheba, uh, he lusted, he coveted his neighbor's wife, he eventually had Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, killed, murdered. And so, you know, you add all that up, that's a bad, 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 bad sin. That's not what's going on in 2 Samuel 24. What was David's sin there? Well, he was counting. He was, he, he was, he was counting. What do you mean counting? He was counting soldiers. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Counting, counting, counting. Now, when you, when you think about it, you think, well, counting, what's so bad about that? We count every Sunday, you know, we got, we got our, our, our folks count how many people we got, and then we've got people that count the money, and, and they're all, all of our counters, they're pretty good people. They're not bad people, they're, I wouldn't categorize them as, 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 as sinners at all, you know, they don't have sticky fingers when they're counting the money, you know, they're good folks. So what's the problem here? Not only, not only was God upset about the counting, in fact, God was so upset about the counting that, that he sent a plague and a lot of people died. When David had that terrible, terrible sin of the affair with Bathsheba and, and, and Uriah's murder, God didn't send any plague. Nobody died. There was consequences, but not for the whole, whole people. But here, 2 Samuel 24, David's taking a census, counting people, and, and God, you know, is mad. What's the problem? Well, David should have known better. You see, David, of anybody, should have known better. David is, is he, should have he should have remembered that, that to God, numbers aren't what matters. Are we going to trust God or are we going to trust the, the, the military might? See, this was a radical departure for David, a radical faith departure. Up until now, his whole life, David understood one very important fact, and that is God is bigger than the numbers. He should have known that from even when he was a kid. By the numbers, you know, nine foot tall in a stocking feet, Goliath is going to wipe out some little kid. But God said, no, David, I think five little stones in a slingshot, that's more than enough. You'll do all right. 
David should have known that, that God was, cared more about, about him and the people of Israel than what the numbers said. He should have learned that from Gideon. Remember Gideon's story? It's one of my favorite stories. That's the story where, where Gideon is... It, the story begins with Gideon in a wine press threshing wheat, which you cannot do because you can't thresh wheat in a wine press. He's down in this wine press trying to thresh wheat because the Midianite army is out there and is about to wipe everybody out, and Gideon's a great big fraidy cat. He doesn't want to be seen by the Midianite army, so he's hanging out in a wine press, hiding like a fraidy cat, and an angel shows up, and the, thing, the first words out of the angel's mouth is, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And I think Gideon's looking around and said, is there somebody else in this wine press? I'm mighty chicken, not mighty warrior. And eventually, though, Gideon got out of the wine press and he gathered 32,000 troops, and you'll remember God looked at those 32,000 troops and said, boy, that's too many. And he whittled it down, whittled it down, whittled it down until he got 300 troops. And the 300 troops he got, we're not talking Navy SEALs. Do you know how they determined the battle readiness of those 300 troops? He had, he had them, whoever drinks water like a dog. So if they got down on all fours and were lapping up water, I don't think that's a good way to pick a guy to fight your battles. But guess what? Those 300 yokels who drink water like a dog, they went out and knocked the stuffing out of the Midianites. Why? Because the numbers don't matter to God. And David should have known that. David really should have known that. He should have listened to his own words because in the book of, of Psalm, one of the Psalms that David wrote said, some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. That's a great verse. David should have listened to it. See, David was, was trusting his security in the number of soldiers that he had. Our security is not about, it's not about money. It's not about military might. It's not about any of those things. David was doing what he said he would never do. Now, we've probably done that too a time or two. He said, I'll never do that. But then he ended up doing it, counting all those soldiers. And God lets him know that his kingdom was, was, was not about programs with people, not about portfolios with people, not about prestige with people. And later, you know, Jesus reminds us of that great truth. He said, when, you know, when the shepherd left the 99 sheep to go look for that one lost sheep, doesn't make sense, but it's about people, people, people. Well, finally, David came to his senses and figured it out. The, the, the point that David needed to learn is the same lesson that Adam and Eve needed to learn, the same lesson that the children of Israel needed to learn, the same lesson that Gideon needed to learn. God must be our security. God must be our help. God must be our supply. And whenever we forget that, when we get our eyes onto whether it's the soldiers or whether it's on our money or whether it's on our bank accounts or whatever, when, that's when greed starts to raise its ugly head. And we start thinking that money or power or whatever is, is, is more important than God. We're talking greed this morning. And if you haven't caught on, the main point is, is that greed is the opposite of trusting in God. You simply cannot trust in God and be greedy at the same time. It's impossible. So what's it going to be? Jesus said this in Luke chapter 6. He said, give and it will be given unto you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap. When I hear that verse, you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me, maybe I've shared this before, I can't remember. It reminds me of Cocoa Krispies. I love Cocoa Krispies. I'm a sugar cereal kind of guy, so I like Cocoa Puffs, Cocoa Krispies, Captain Crunch, Cinnamon Toast Crunch. Uh, you know, you can keep your Cheerios and plain old nasty Rice Krispies and all the cereal that Carla eats. No thank you, I'll eat Captain Crunch. 
or Cocoa Krispies. Now, when you buy Cocoa Krispies, you know, you buy the family size because you want to eat a lot of them, and you get that big box of Cocoa Krispies and you open it up. When you look inside that box, do you know what happens? The box is not filled with Cocoa Krispies. It's only about half filled with Cocoa Krispies. Why is that? Because in the shipping and the handling, the Cocoa Krispies settle down to the bottom of the bag that's in the box. You know this. And, and, And Jesus is saying, listen, I'm not like the Kellogg's Corporation. It'd be like you sit on, you, you put a box of Cocoa Krispies in your lap and I'll fill it up to the tippy tippy top. And then once it's filled up to the tippy top, I'll take that box and I'll shake it and I'll press it down, all those Cocoa Krispies, and I'll get them all pushed down and shaken and then I'll start pouring again. And I'll pour out the blessings even more and I'll get to the tippy top and guess what? I'm not gonna stop there. I'm gonna keep out pouring out those blessings and pouring out those blessings and pretty soon they're gonna pour into your lap because that's the way I get blessings. It's not like, the, not like the Kellogg's Corporation. I don't stop when it's at the top and let it settle down. No, once it settles down, I keep on pouring out the blessings. And then notice what Jesus says. This, is, this isn't some uh, 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 snake oil salesman. This isn't a con man that's saying it. This is what Jesus says. Give and it'll be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, poured into your lap, just like all those Cocoa Krispies. And then he says this, for with the measure you use, it'll be measured to you. With the measure you use. In other words, Jesus is saying, it's you and me. We set the standard for God's blessings. God wants to pour blessings into our lives. I believe he really does. But it's up to us to see what kind of return we're going to receive. That's the promise. See, if you're a giver in life, God says he's going to give unto you. If you're a taker in life, you're a greedy person, you're on your own. Just this lesson was just taught to us again yesterday. My sister-in-law came to visit uh, my mother-in-law yesterday. She came over to our house yesterday afternoon, and she was sitting there in the, in the kitchen, and she told my sister-in-law, Carla's sister, she's a single mom, she doesn't have extra money. She, you know, it's, uh, she, she, she needs all the money she can get. And she talked about how in her church, two Sundays in a row, they had missionaries come to speak at their church. This is just, just, just this month. And she felt the first missionary spoke, I think he was from India or someplace, and he spoke about some of the needs going on in India, and she just felt compelled to give him uh, some, some extra money. She wrote out a check, gave him extra money. The next Sunday, they had another missionary. Their pastor's on sabbatical. They had another missionary that came. I think that one was from Mexico. He spoke, and she felt again, the Lord was telling her, no, why don't you get a little extra for that missionary? So she did. And then just this week, she got news that she had overpaid something. She got, she got like $1,400. She was just praising the Lord. She said, you know, I didn't know anything about that, and I didn't have the money, but I gave the money. And she told her teenage son, and she, he said, she said, see, this is how God works. And that is how God works. Jesus said it, give and it'll be given unto you. That's just, that's how it works. The measure you use will be used for you. The question is, are we gonna trust God? Are we gonna look at our resources or are we gonna look at God's resources? Now I've had some folks in financial ruin and they've come to me and they say, pastor, you know, we are, we are in trouble. We don't know, we can't pay our bills and we're in a mess. And it's happened plenty of times in the last 31 years of ministry. And sometimes, not always, but sometimes, and I don't even know why I ask this question because I know the answer, but sometimes I still ask it. I'll say, well, tell me, how are you doing on your, your giving to the Lord? How are you doing in your tithing? And never, not even one time, not one time, 
When a person who's come to me in financial ruin and I ask them, well, you know, how are you doing in your, in your giving to the Lord? Not one time have they said, oh, we're right up to date. You know, we are, we are totally up to date. Usually what happens if I ask that question, I don't always, but usually if I ask that question, they start backpedaling. Well, you know, we'd like to, but we can't afford it. You know, we got all these bills. But see, what Jesus says is, 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 is that's not the way it works. We give unto him and he blesses. Give and it will be given unto you. Too often I think we're like the little boy whose mom gave him two dollars one dollar for Sunday school and one dollar for an ice cream cone after Sunday school. And as he was going to Sunday school, he slipped and fell and the dollars fell out and the one dollar went down in the storm drain. It was gone. And that little kid looked up to heaven and said, well, God, looks like you lost your dollar. <laughs> Couldn't be my ice cream dollar. What kind of giver are you going to be? What kind of person are you going to be? Are you going to be greedy or a giver? A giver or a taker? From Jesus' perspective, being giving has nothing to do with money. Remember what we're talking about here. We're talking about greed. And when we said our, our foundational statement is you're either greedy or you're trusting. Who are you going to trust? See, trust was the issue with Adam and Eve. I don't know if we can trust God. That fruit sure looks good. Trust was the issue with the children of Israel when they're in the wilderness for some of those folks. I don't know if we can trust God. I know he's been providing every single day in the morning and at night, manna in the morning, quail at night, but I don't know. We better, maybe we better hoard a little bit more. Trust was the issue for, for, for David and, and Gideon. What are we going to do here? The armies look, look way bigger than what we've got. Who are you going to trust? God says, give, and it'll be given unto you. Too often we want to read that verse that says, give unto me, and then I'll give back to you. Give me a million dollars, God, and then, you know, then I'll, you know, I'll, be, I'll tithe on that. But that's not what it says. It says give. The, 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 the measure in which we use will be used unto us. Malachi 3, you've read this verse. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, for that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. The only place in Scripture, the only place... In Scripture, where God says, test me, test me, test me, is right there in Malachi 3, talking about money. He said, test me in this. See if it's not true. Am I going to be a giving person or a greedy person? That's the question. Am I going to trust God or am I not going to trust God? Now, what, what if I were to propose to you, say you've been having struggling with, with giving, you know, when you don't know, you think you see it, you say, oh my goodness, tithing, 10%, that's crazy. Suppose I said to you, listen, we got this really wealthy guy in our church, and he has made a deal that if you start tithing, that uh, 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 at the end of a couple months, if you see that you're falling short and you don't have enough, he'll make up any difference. Now, you can't be crazy. You can't, you know, start tithing and then go buy a, you know, a portion, a 90-inch, uh, you know, flat-screen TV. But if you just, you know, you, 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 you start tithing, and if at the end of the, uh, a couple months you see you're falling short, this guy will make up the difference, would you do it? You say, well, yeah, given those conditions, I guess I would. I guess I, w- I guess I would do it. Listen, there's nobody like that in our church. But God has more provisions than anybody in our church, I can assure you. God has more provisions than Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos or any other rich person in this world. The Bible tells us that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, that the, the, the streets of heaven are paved with gold. He, he cares so little about gold, he uses it like asphalt. 
Who are you going to trust? Who, who are you going to put your hope in? Am I going to trust my 401k? Am I going to trust my bank account? Or am I going to trust God Almighty? That's the question. You can't be trusting and greedy at the same time. You can't be looking to God for your help and your strength while you're still holding on to your only resources. God says, trust me, trust me, trust me. Who are you going to trust? Adam and Eve? They didn't think they could trust God in the garden. Got to get that fruit. Children of Israel? They didn't think they could trust God in the wilderness. Got to hoard. David? He didn't think he could trust God. Got to count the soldiers. Who will you trust? I love this story of... Um, General Superintendent Paul Cunningham. Paul Cunningham, before he was General Superintendent, was pastor of Olathe College Church of the Nazarene. It's, it was, at the time, the largest Nazarene church in the world. But Dr. Cunningham went there when it was a small church, uh, just a home mission church, in the early 1960s. And he pastored there for 30-some years before he was elected General Superintendent. So when he first got there, I mean, it was, it was just a handful of people. And, and uh, you know how, how things go. He got there and a handful of people and it started to grow and people started to come and, and pretty soon, you know, they, they started, they thought they needed to do a little building project but they didn't have any money. And so, you know, he said, as he tells this story, and I heard him tell this story a lot of times. As he told that story, he would say he was, he was kind of having a pity party for himself. And he was all upset, you know, and saying, Lord, what you need to do is you need to send us some money. If we had some money, then we could build, and that would be great. So, Lord, why don't you just send us some money so we can do this? And he felt like God was speaking to him and said, well, I tell you, I tell you what, this is what you need to do. He goes, you know what you need to do. And, and Dr. Cunningham said, Lord, I don't know what I need to do. If I knew what we needed to do, I'd do it. And so the Lord, he says, clear as, doubt, as, as a bell, spoke into him and said, this is what you need to do. You need to, you need to preach the message I'm going to give you next Sunday, and you need to receive an offering for missions. I want your church to give $1,000 for missions. And Dr. Cunningham said, now, said he prayed, Lord, I don't know how it works in heaven, but this is how it works on earth. If you don't have $1,000 to pay your bills and you don't have $1,000 to start a building project, then you certainly don't have $1,000 laying around to give to missions. Now again, this is back in the 60s. They, this whole church budget, it's a small little church. $10,000 was their yearly budget. That tells you where it was. So $1,000, they'd never given any, anything close to $1,000 in one offering. Never, ever, ever. And so God said, yeah, I know how it works. He goes, but I want to give you a message, and I want you to preach that message, and I want you to ask for people to give $100. To which Dr. Cunningham said, Lord, I, I, I can't do that. He said, I've never asked my people to do more than what I've done, and I don't have, a, I don't have $100 to give and to ask, ask nine other people to give $100. And the Lord said, that's good, because I don't want you to give $100. And Dr. Cunningham said, whew. The Lord said, I want you to give $200. And Dr. Cunningham said, now, Lord, I don't know how it works in heaven, but here's how it works on earth. If you don't have $100 to give, you surely don't have $200 to give. And God said, I know how it works. He said, but, Dr. but Paul, what would you do if your family really needed uh, uh, $200? If you were desperately needed, again, this is before ATM machines. This is before credit cards were in use. This is before any of that. $200 was more than a tank of gas. It was a lot of money. He said, well, I'd probably go to the bank. He said, exactly, that's what you need to do. So Paul Cunningham went to the bank, Olathe State Bank, where he met the banker, the loan officer, by a guy by the name of Mr. Osborne. 
So he gets to meet with Mr. Osborne. He tells him the whole story, how, how he's from the pastor in this little church and how they were wanting to... To, they, they're small and they need to go into a building project but they really feel like he needs to take this offering for missions and he's never asked people to give more than what he was able to give and he wanted to, to take out a loan for $200 and he was going to ask eight other people to give $100 and they were going to raise this $1,000 and they were going to give it to the missions and, 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 and Mr. Osborne said now let me see if I got this right preacher you want to borrow $200 and and uh, you want to give that money away so that other people can also give $100 and you want to raise money for missions and you don't know how you're going to pay this back. Is that what you're telling me? And Dr. Cunningham said, well, that's what I'm, that's what I'm telling you. He goes, but I will pay it back. And Mr. Osborne looked at him and said, yeah, I believe you will give it back. So he said, you can have the $200. You can take six months to pay it back. And then Mr. Osborne got out his own personal check, checkbook and he wrote out a check for $25. Said, here, put this towards your missionary offering. Well, the next Sunday came. You know what's going to happen. The next Sunday came. They didn't raise $1,000 for missions. They raised $1,300 for missions. And Dr. Cunningham, again, this, this was just a handful of people, early 1960s. It became the largest church in the Church of the Nazarene. Dr. Cunningham points back to that conversation with Mr. Osborne, his conversation with the Lord, and said that was the turning point in the church. So you look back over the history of the church when the church really started growing, when the church really started doing great things for God, when, the, when things really took off, was after they decided they were going to get their eyes off of their own problems, off of their own building needs, off of their needs of, of what was going on around them and start caring about other people. So when they started doing that, that's when the, that's when the roof blew off and God really started blessing them. It's the same with you and me. The question becomes, who are we going to trust? Where are we going to put our hope where are we going to put our, 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 our goals? Are we going to trust God when he says give and give unto me? And, and, and if you start doing that, you start giving, you start being trusting in God, not being greedy. That's when God pours out his blessings. You know that's true. I, I, I can tell you a hundred stories of how in my folks, and I've told you my dad's story, and you know from where he came to where he was. There were plenty of times when I was a kid growing up, and my dad, my dad just, he, you know, he was all in. When he was all in, he was all in. And so he would, he would give. He, it was, tithing was never a question. It was never a question for us kids. I'd mow grass. You know, somebody give me a dollar for mowing a grass. You got to put a dime in for an offering. I know. It was never a question. Because we were going to put God first. We were going to put God first. We were going to put God first. And God blessed that. Just like my sister-in-law, God blessed that. I remember when my sister was the first one to go to, to college in our family, my sister Pam. And she, she, uh, she's 10 years older than me. She went in 1971. I can't remember what the amount of her tuition was, but I think it was less than $2,000 for room and board and tuition. So, you know, you, you know, today's dollar, I think Olivet now, is it's over 40000 But back then, 1971, it was $2,000. My dad, my dad they, just, they just knew that God wanted his, he wanted his kids to go to a Christian school. And so, he said, well, you know, you go and we'll figure out how we're going to pay for it. Again, he'd always been faithful, faithful, faithful. And that year, 1971, 
Our, our, our kids, our family, we're all spread out. Three years apart, three, three, three. And then I'm, I'm four years, I'm the baby, four years from my sister. So they had kids in college from 1971 to 1985, straight. And in 1971, very first year, my dad worked for Ford Motor Company. He worked in, at the Rouge factory. The, 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 the time between Christmas and New Year's, uh, they determined in 1971 that they needed a guy like my dad's position to be at the factory. No one was there. They closed down the, the factory there, but they needed somebody in my dad's position to be there. And so my dad said, said all right, I'll, I'll be there. And guess what? That week, that one week, paid for my sister's tuition. The next year, you know, the tuition goes up a little bit, and the next year, my dad, the, you know, same thing, need somebody, will you do it? That happened every single year until 1985. And every single year, they were able to pay off our college bill from the, my dad's working during that week. And guess what happened? 1986, Ford Motor Company decided they didn't need my dad there that week anymore. He never worked that week again. Never before, never after. What happened? Now, some people would say, well, that's just a coincidence. Isn't that, isn't that something? The year he determined that his kids were going to go get a Christian education and he didn't know how he was going to pay for it. Isn't that a coincidence? A Ford Motor Company said, we need you for that one week. And isn't that a coincidence that every single year for 14 straight years, isn't that a strange coincidence they need you? And then the year that you didn't need the money, Ford said, well, we don't need you either there. That's the way God works. That's what I'm telling you. Put God first. The measure you use will be the measure used unto you. And God pours out the blessing. The question becomes, who are you going to trust? Are you going to trust God? Or are you going to trust your stuff? You trust your stuff, God says, all right, it's all on you. You trust in God. He's got, he's got the cattle on a thousand hills. Why don't you stand? Let's sing this old song. You know it. I'd rather have Jesus than silver and gold. <laughs>